Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome. You are now listening to The Professional Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Podcast. It's your girl, Ebony, and I am super excited, really excited about this week's episode. Um, so before we begin, let's do a little housekeeping. Please make sure to follow me on Instagram at the Professional Homegirl, at the PhD Podcast, and last but not least, at Ebony Beauty. Please make sure to check out the website at www.thepghpodcast.com. And last but not least, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please make sure to email me at hello at the phdpodcast.com. So please keep in mind that all of my guests are anonymous. So let's begin this week's episode. So to my guests, how are you? How are you feeling? I'm doing good, Ebony. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited too. How you been holding up with everything going on with the coronavirus? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I've been getting to know inside of the house. <laughs> I, I know, right? Yes. I've I think been, it's you know, the, the kitchen and everything. <laughs> right? Yes, I'm learning to navigate through this place. And you know what I've been doing too? A lot of um um a lot of ebooks, um, a lot of, you know, these master classes on learning how to use, you know, do graphic designs and stuff like that, just to kind of just to learn something new, learn some new things. So keeping busy. Good, good. Well, I already shared this with you, but I want to say thank you so much for being on the PSG podcast. And just sharing the gems that you learn on your journey, because I know it's going to help a lot of my listeners out. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. So let's start from the very beginning, shall we? Okay, let's do it. So let's start with your childhood. How was your childhood growing up? Uh, well, you know, my childhood growing up, um, I grew up in, I'm not going to say we were a poor family, but, you know, um, a middle, low, lower middle class, I would say. You know, I had, my parents were, were married. Um, they were married young, right out of high school, and they had myself. Um, my mother, she was going to school and also working, and my dad was working at um, at a plant here in Massachusetts at that time. Um, and as a kid, you know, I thought, you know, life with my parents were, was fun. You know, it was fun. Mm -hmm. I have my grandparents here, and I have a host of cousins, and um, life was, you know, life was fun um, for me as a kid. Um, you know, we did have... Uh, a dysfunctional family at some point um, when I like most of us, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and as, and as we, we learn, we learn that in dysfunction, we know how to be functional, you know? <laughs> so the thing, yeah. yeah. So things that may seem like a struggle to, to others, it's like, this is the way that it is for us. It's a normalcy um, for things that aren't normal. And, and I think that as, you know, people from, you know, black and Brown and, you know, people that live in urban neighborhoods, that that's a, a, a gift that we all have, 
developed is to learn how to make something out of nothing, make good situations out of bad situations. And what some call struggle, uh, we call survival, you know? Word. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. And that's what I learned. That's what I learned. You know, I, I had, um, I, you know, in my childhood, I went to school. My parents went to work and my mom was going to school. Um, and as, you know, time went on, um, I was the only child for five years. So, um, you know, I was pretty much a daddy's girl and, you know, a spoiled brat, probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> probably a spoiled brat, but... Um, as, as time went on, um, there started to be a, a decline in the fun in our family. Um, you know, my parents being young parents, you know, they started to argue and fight a little bit about infidelities that were going on. And um, also, you know, there was um, drug usage in, in the home. Mother's side has eight children and uh, eight brothers and sisters for her. And my dad's side has 11 brothers and sisters for them. Oh, wow. You have a big family. Yeah. And them being the two oldest of their families, you know. You know, their sisters and brothers mm. would hang, you know, would come on the weekends and hang out at our place. So, you know, they, you know, they smoked weed, they drank, played, you know, have fun. Um, you know, there was other type of, you know, other substances there. But, you know, as a kid, I didn't know what those things were. I just knew that, you know, it seemed like they was all having a good time. I love listening to music. They played music. And that was the vibe back then in the 70s, you know. Um, so I know you were really close with your father. Mm-hmm. And I know that your father and your mother had you know, they was arguing, they was fighting, there was a lot of things going on. So how hard was that for you to see your father knowing that, like, I guess because now you're a little bit, you are older, so now you can see, like, you know, you didn't agree with your father was doing back then, but it's kind of like back then, you still, like, loved him regardless. Like, you didn't judge him or anything, or, like, you was not okay with it, but, like, you understood. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um again, in learning how to be um, functional in, a, in an environment of dysfunction, um, you know, as a kid, you mm-hmm. really don't know what's going on. You really don't, you you don't, you have no clue what's going on. You just know when something's good and when something's bad, you know, when something's yeah. not right. And it's just that there was a lot of situations that seemed like it repeatedly became not right. And, um, you know, there were a couple of instances where I was like, wow, dad is crazy. Like, what is wrong with him? You know, <laughs> right. you know it's just like, wow, this is not, um, he's, you know, just not, it, it's just not my dad doing this, but Again, I'm a daddy's girl, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I love both of my parents, but you know, that, that relationship that I had with my dad, um, you know, was, was a special, is a special relationship that we still have today. Um, even though we missed sometimes for me growing up and things like that, it was, um, you know, I still love my dad. I, I, I was upset with him when I saw him and my mother fighting. I was upset with him when I saw yeah. him doing wrong. I, I, I was, I was upset, but I didn't um, grow up with a hate for my father. I didn't grow up that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that could have possibly been because um, uh, when him and my mother uh, ended their relationship, I didn't see him for a lot of years, you know, and maybe um, I think I want to say that I'm um, thinking about it. Maybe I've just missed him. Just the, the emptiness of not having them there that, you know, I didn't think too much about just more sadness for me than anger. Yeah. So I know also during this time, you began your entrepreneur journey. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so funny because I feel like every little black and brown yeah. girl did this. You were selling candy at uh-huh. your school and you were taxing your school. Yeah, mate. I was taxing them. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't the only one at school doing it. I kind of, I, um, I had a friend who, who was doing it and a couple other kids. And I was a quiet kid and I didn't hang out with much, you know, I have much friends. I was like the little nerdy girl, but I was very um, intuitive and I watched and, um, you know, I tried me. And you also had a lot of family. Yeah, and so. I had a lot of family, too. So um, when, I, when there was a friend of mine who was doing I was thinking, well, I think around my way got better candy than hers, you know. So I, I, started, <laughs> I started to do that same kind of hustle. And nobody knew, nobody ever knew what I was doing because, you know, I'm, I'm the nerdy little girl. I sit at the front of the bus. I don't really, you know, mix in with everybody like that. So no one had an idea. But why did you feel like you didn't fit in, though? Well, I didn't. I mean, I thought I was the Black Annie. Annie was <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> Annie was my favorite character. And, um, you know, I used, to, <laughs> I used to think that I was her. I wanted to be her. And I just, I don't know. I don't think I was with, in, I wasn't in with, like, the cool kids. You know, I didn't, you know, I just, I just didn't have that. And I, I didn't do that. Right. And I was just quiet. And I really stuck to myself. And then, you know, I had a couple of friends at school. And we were just, like, the, the uncool kids. <laughs> which was fine with me. Well, 
Well, speaking of friends, you met your first yes, love. Yes, I did in high school. I did. I did. Uh, How was that relationship in the beginning? Everything. It's everything. And um, I can tell it was everything <laughs> just by the pictures you were yeah. showing on your documentary. I was like, yeah, they was in love. Yeah, everything. You know what? And I and I really wanted to um have more pictures. Um, we have so much better pictures, but in that, I I don't have the pictures. I had to even go to different family members just to get the pictures. And I'm so sad that I have never been good at you know, like getting the family photos and keeping them and having the photo album and stuff. But you're living in the I moment know, though, that's right. why. And so he has all those things, but I was unable to get them during the time frame. But yeah, we were, we met in high school and I believe that instantly we loved each other. You know, we knew, we knew each other. I know who he was as a person. He knew who I was as a person. It wasn't any of the, you know, trying to act like this person, act like that person. I could really be who I was and I didn't have to add anything to that. You know, we just accepted each other the way that we were. I think the one reason why I gravitated towards your story the most, because I always feel like you had a positive outlook on everybody and everything. Yeah, that's one of my problems. Because I, <laughs> I know, right? Same. That's probably why I like your story so much. <laughs> but no, because even during your relationship, you know, your first love developed a drug right. habit and that relationship became abusive. Mm-hmm. But like, in a way, you still talked about that relationship during that time with such respect I do have a lot of respect for it um you know when you're going through a dark time or when you're going through something like that you really um you really are in a hole you know and you don't feel like Mm -hmm. there's gonna be you don't you don't know what's going on how it's gonna go you don't have any control over it you don't um so it's just like every day you're just lost really um and the only thing that I could tell you that really keeps that together or kept that together for me is knowing that we love each other, knowing that, understanding what addiction is. Addiction is, is a disease. Yeah. So he had a disease, you know? And I, I mean, and thinking back to it, if I think about, you know, what my family, me growing up, that disease had always been throughout my whole family, you know? So I've always, mm-hmm. yeah, so Same. I've always known the disease of addiction. So I could not, um, you know, I, I think that having that um, type of history and knowing that, that it made it, less difficult for me to understand what he was going through you know I may not have known Mm -hmm. um, the type of uh, the type of symptoms from the certain drugs that were being used or whatever but um, I had an understanding that addiction is a disease and that this is something that was not him I I could separate him from the addiction you know and I know that that person who Mm -hmm. he was that I know who he is exists there yeah, because he tried it. I was like, nah, come on <laughs> yes. now. He's right. I mean, we, we went through a lot. We went through a, we went through an absolute lot. Mm-hmm. We really did. We really did. Did you ever think about how the relationship that you was that you were in with him was similar to your parents? I thought that it was at one point. You know what? I, and I'll tell you this. I always thought that, like, you know, um, I always did. I would do things better than what my mother did, you know, like. I always Same. thought that, and I tell you every time that I would think that God surely shows me <laughs> that he, he humbles you, man. You something about God, He will humble you faster than you can say, "Oh, I know that." You know, no, you don't know anything, little girl. Yo, that's a fact. <laughs> I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah. Why do you think we? Why do you think we think that? Because I know I think that, and I know other girls that's mm-hmm. listening to this episode is, is thinking the same thing. Yeah. So why do you think we I think, think that? that we, we feel that way because we're seeing something just like as a, a younger person to an older person. Oh, y'all did that back then. This is what the new stuff is now. We're not even knowing. Listen, mm-hmm. listen, little lady. There's no such thing as something new. <laughs> this has all been done before. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fact. This has all been done before <laughs> and it has been done. And, and the solution and the resolution that you think you're coming up with today, someone came up with many moons ago before you was even thought of, before your mother was even thought of. This has all been done before. You know, there's, there's nothing mm-hmm. new to it. I used to think that, oh my God, I can't stand my mother always, but you know, I love fruit. Me and my mother both love fruit, right? So she would have a fruit bowl and in mm-hmm. her fruit bowl, it would just be those red apples and those big oranges. And I would think, oh my God, when I get my own place, when I get back, I'm gonna have a better fruit bowl than my mother. It's gonna have great, <laughs> you know, it's gonna have grapes and strawberries and bananas and all the fruit in there. You know what I mean? And And that's how I continue to look at it like, but listen, I wasn't doing anything better. Yeah, I may have a fruit bowl with a different fruit in it. But when I go to my mother's house, I still was eating those apples and oranges. You know, I still missed. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there was, you know, there was just, um, 
I just always thought I was ahead of the game and she didn't know nothing what she was talking about a lot of times. But the first person you right. turn to when something goes wrong is your mother. <laughs> you is your mother. You yeah. know, so I, I've gone to my mother many a times. Because um, she understood. She she understood what I was going through. You know, she would understand mm-hmm. that. And I would try to act like I was stronger than, you know, that what she had been through and all that stuff. But, you know, I showed myself how much stronger my mother was because at that time she had she had left the situation right that's not mm-hmm. something that i did <laughs> you know you know mm. so see when we talk about that i again god humbled me and i got I understood that i won't never say that again because he showed me something same same thing you're going through yeah. but there was a decision that she made one day and i was never strong enough to make that decision you know yeah how is your parents relationship now like are they yeah they are you know they they um and their families grew up in the same projects together so their families were we're real families you know what i mean like together friends you know their sisters and brothers are friends and all of that i even have a set of cousins that are related to me on both sides (laughs) because yeah oh wow (laughs) yes my my cousin, uh, my cousin that is actually on my episodes. You'll see a Thadio there. His father is my mother's brother, and his mother is my father's first cousin. So, <laughs> so, so we you, we can't get away from each other more so or less. You know what I mean? We cannot. Oh, we can't. Boy. And, uh, for the past few years, what's funny is uh, my parents hadn't you know they hadn't been you know around each other to communicate or whatever like if we go to funerals of their old friends and stuff like that they would see each other and of course be cordial they don't continue to you know my mother doesn't continue to hate my father you know they both moved on with life and and so forth but again she still carries pain from that relationship which is understandable you know she carries pain from that and um you know uh over the past say three for the past two years my father had been living with me so yeah, so oh, we wow. actually spent Christmas together, all the holidays together, and um, it it was it's just heart you know just heartbreaking and melting and warming at the same time for me to have my parents together these past yeah. two Christmases. I, it was just like wow, I haven't had that since I was a kid, you know. And so I bet yeah, you yeah. know, life goes on and people grow up and you become more mature and you know you still have to get back to family. Yeah, family is important, important for sure. Very important. Yeah. So now in yeah. 2000, you got mm-hmm. your degree in business right. management and you later got a job at college working mm-hmm. with student loans. So what were your responsibilities? So, well, the, fir- the first position um, that I got at the school, it was, yeah, the, the first, first one, one yeah. I got into the school was actually being uh, um, the director of student accounts and the coordinator of Perkins loans, right? So in that position, I was mm-hmm. responsible for um, making sure that um, the accounts of students were paid up to date. Um, and it was for the graduate student population. So if they had a balance on their account and waiting for any funding to come in, then I was the person that they would um, make, sh- you know, I would make sure that those um, loose ends were tied up or if they had to go on a payment plan or something like that. Um, so that was the mm-hmm. that was the major part of the role. And the second part of the role um, was to coordinate the Perkins loans, meaning to do the due diligence for students who have now graduated and they owe money on the Perkins loan, which they pay the school back the money for Perkins loans. Um, so um, I would manage the Perkins loan program by making sure I did the due diligence by reaching out to them if they're late on their payments or, um, you know, just keeping keeping management of those files. So when did the thought cross your head about even just depositing a check into your bank account? Well, you know, there was a situation that occurred, um, you know, in my in my household. And I, what happened, a direct thing that would happen is, um, you know, the rent went, went missing. And my partner, my partner was mm-hmm. off with the, the rent at this one time. Yeah, when he did that, yeah. I was like, child. But that really? was, you know, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't like the first time that something like that happened. It was the first time that I wasn't mm-hmm. able to to hands to take care of it um you know so yeah different situations like that we have been through but this particular time I wasn't able to I I didn't have any idea where this was going to come from so Mm -hmm. what I did do was I thought about it a little bit and I you know I used I created in my mind I created a plan that I'd be able to borrow this like I'm I'm borrowing from a bank or something right that was my thinking like I'm going to borrow this and then I'm going to put it back you know in some 
Because you have have a a game game plan. plan. And when you're trying to do something that you're not supposed to be doing, or even when you are doing something, you're making a plan for it, right? You know, so so I created this plan based off of what I needed um, to help me out in a situation. And um, once I did that, there was for me for me um, there was no turning back from it. Actually, um, that plan actually changed the minute that I did it. The plan. But it's like when I was watching it, I kind of understood why you did it because it's like your back yeah. was against the wall. Because it's it's one thing if you have to worry about yourself, but you had yeah. babies. Yeah, I did. And I had a whole family that I was, you know, trying to support. And you know, not that that's an excuse at all. Yeah, you know, it's not to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, no, not not that I agree with right. this an excuse, but I understood right. why you no, did I, it. No, and I totally I, I totally get that too. And I think about I, I just want people to totally understand that you know what, your back can be against the wall, but that's the wrong decision is not the best, <laughs> you know? It's not it's not the best <laughs> right. you have to um when you feel when you're doing something out of panic or out of fear or out of, you know, not mm. being able to sit and really think about it. And you know the whole thing is wrong. Well, you have to think of a back door of something that you know that you're not doing the right thing. You're not. Were you nervous? Not at first. No, I think that I wasn't focused on any emotion of this. You know, the only thing I was thinking of is this is how this is going to work. I didn't think of any Mm -hmm. other consequences of that. I didn't think about if it didn't work out properly. I didn't think of none of that. I talked myself into making sure that me and my head were in the same place and I, <laughs> and I was saying look there's no way this is, isn't gonna work there's no way possible it isn't gonna work right and I mean I went ahead and I put it in there and I think like the next day when I went to um see that it had cleared and I was like wow okay well that worked you know but I was a little yeah it was, it was over then, but I was a little <laughs> nervous about you know withdrawing the funds but once the funds came mm-hmm. out I, it was it was over with. It was over with me from there. I, I wasn't I wasn't gonna just stop doing it. It wasn't that whole plan I had. Well, this just this one. That plan was <laughs> out the door once it worked. You know. But I also know one of your goals during that time was you were working on being in the right, music industry. Right. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, and again, that these funds from um, from doing that also helped me to learn the music industry business. And I started uh, what how that helped me is because I started to find different events to go to so that I can network um, with music industry, you know, and um, yeah, I, feel like I was, was everywhere. everywhere. I was, I was, I was, <laughs> I was everywhere. I said, oh, she lit. <laughs> I was everywhere. You know what? I, thinking about it. Yes. I was pretty lit. I was pretty lit. I didn't make my, you know, I didn't give myself this high horse of a feeling or anything like that. I still felt like, you know, I didn't feel like I was on top of the world and I was on top of my game and, you know, I'm this and I'm that, but looking back at everything I was pretty lit because I was a person who didn't wait to get an invite into something it's just like yo I see it in somewhere I'm gonna take it I even used to I used to like look up the different events that were happening while I'm trying to learn the business so I was going to different music seminars and things like that conferences so that I can learn and that I can network and um when mm-hmm. sometimes, um, you know, when I learned how, how to navigate through them, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to now sign myself up for, because these VIP tickets are way too much. I'm not doing that. So I'm going to look and see, oh, well, wait a minute now. If you go as press, press, you can get a free ticket. Yeah. So I started learning. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's what that's I be what doing. I <laughs> that's what I started to do because I needed to cut down on the ticket costs. <laughs> Because tickets be oh so damn goodness. expensive. You see one that's like $500. It's like, for what? You know? What are we doing? <laughs> Just to stand there and to meet people? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I started to learn different ways that I could lessen the cost of that. But again, when I traveled to these places, I was bringing, you know, my sons with me. I was bringing my sister, you know, sometimes her friends with me. So that there could be multiple of us to, you know, network and navigate the room as well. Um, but you know, I had to travel with my kids mm-hmm. with me too. So yeah. Well, that's, that's one thing I definitely got from your story. You definitely looked out for your people that was around you. I, I tried you. to, you know, I tried to, and it's not that I was not that money was the answer to that. But what I wanted is that the that world that was open there. I wanted every. I'm always wanting people to learn and to see that there's more than what they know of as well as myself so once I opened my eyes to something I couldn't wait to show others you know like look look at look at mm. look at this and you can learn this and you can do that you know that's more so what the the bottom line for me was is to show people that there was more yeah 
So while you was making a name for yourself, were your family and friends questioning you where you got the money from? No, no, not at all. I tell you that, um, you know, I had this great job title and people just really always thought that, you know, I had it, you know, I had it to do. Um, no one mm-hmm. ever questioned as to, because who knew what I was, you know, what anything cost or anything like that. Like I didn't have, I didn't live luxurious. And why would you question right. if you're not paying for it? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> you don't be questioning me. <laughs> exactly. You know, you know what? You're right. I'm not paying for yeah, it. Absolutely. It's not my you're, like you're your own way out there, but no, no, no one ever questioned me. It's just like, you know, people thought that I had this great job and I wasn't making a lot of money in the job, but it was a, at a, at a, great school is that a you know mm-hmm. yeah the, the title, title was too. big you know I had a big office and all these things and I had access to different resources but you know the position didn't even pay me like even 30,000 you know I was just working working with what I of had course. to do you know what I mean so it could look like that but really I, I wasn't I wasn't balling like that in, in real life <laughs> And that's why I always tell people to stop being so yeah. hyped over titles because titles don't oh mean goodness, anything. You, know, you would think that I'm the director of student accounts. Woo. You know, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, it was, exactly. a big, it was a big title because before that position, I had been working customer service, you know, in different, in different kind mm-hmm. of um, atmosphere. So I was working customer service, um, life insurance, um, just all, all sorts of things. And then um, the position that I had prior to that was working at a company that worked with um, students and families on uh, completing the financial aid process um, for their schools, for their school loans. And so, um, you know, I worked there for a while and I made some relationships there. And someone from over at the school I went to work with said, you know what, I think you would be great at doing this. And we have this position open. So it's kind of like, that's how that happened. So how long were you doing it before you got Um, home? I want to say a little over two years. So, because what happened is I left that job. I, I was at a point where I said, hey, listen, if I don't leave this school, I'm not going to stop doing this. And so I thought that that was a way mm. that I could go cold turkey and, you know, be done with it. Because if I stayed in that position, you know, eventually, you know, I, I, in my mind, it wasn't saying I need to leave before I get caught. It was I need to leave before I because I'm not going to stop. That's what it was. You know, so I left there. Right and went to another school doing a different position. Like, you know, I don't want to have to deal with checks or anything like that. You know, I, I was, I was like rehabilitating myself, you know, like, like an addict does, you know, <laughs> you know, that's the same thing that I was thinking. And, um, I went to that at the school and when I was there for a couple of months, um, then I, um, the detectives came there and they were questioning me about the school. Yeah. I was you like, already knew what it was. And I had this gut feeling about this one that I did and I couldn't, remember I couldn't I knew that was something I've got to do and I just so I had so many that I was doing right I just couldn't remember which one that was but I knew there was Mm -hmm. one but after a while when nothing happened from it and it was probably very small maybe I think it was about nine hundred dollars between nine or twelve hundred dollars I think something Mm -hmm. small like that and um I just couldn't remember couldn't remember who it was and how to fix it. I left the school and thinking, well, nothing came of it. So I'm gone. I'm in the clear and that's over with. And when, and when they came there, come to find out that was the mm. one. Yeah, that was the one. Damn. So how much were you accused of taking? So I was charged. And what were you charged with? Uttering um, is when you're depositing, you know, the act of depositing checks that don't belong to you, but uttering and forgery were the, were the charges. And that was for a quarter of a million dollars for my first case. So how long were you sentenced to and how was that experience? So the first case I was sentenced to six months and three years probation. Um, I was sentenced to Suffolk County house of corrections, which here we call it um, South Bay, South Bay jail. Um, it is in Boston. Um, I was I was in there for three months, and the, the experience is horrible. There's nothing there's nothing good um, that comes out of jail. Um, there's nothing good that goes in jail. You know, um, you're, so, you're there. Mm-hmm. No, go right ahead. No, go ahead. You're you're in there. Um, you know, you're in a cell. You're in a cell with with others. I had um, two other cellmates that were in a cell with me. We had a sink in there. Um, I was in a unit, you, you're locked in, you know, there's the bars in the whole nine there. And um, the bathroom is outside of your cell and uh, showers are outside of your cell, but they're in the same unit. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little TV area. Um, 
you eat lunch, dinner, breakfast there, right on that floor. Um, mm. women, are, women are treated totally different in prison than men are anyways, um, as well, just like in life. But I'm there. We didn't have a lot of rec time. So going to the library was something that, I mean, we could do, but you're not guaranteed to ever have rec or go to the library or be off of the unit. You know, so there's no guarantee. So if they feel like bringing you, they do. If not, then it doesn't happen. So you're just stuck in there every day, all day, locked in with with these women. And it's a mm. filthy place. It's filthy. Um, it's filthy. The food stinks. And you have to deal with mentally ill people. Um, yeah. Um, people that have some real issues. And there will really be nothing that you could do about it. It really isn't. You just have to do your time. Um, and, and if you're really, if you're weak minded, not to say weak minded, that's the wrong, wrong word to use. If you're a person who um, is unable to grasp the situation that you're in, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it could be it, it could be mentally um, disturbing for you. And not everybody gets to not everyone can make it through those times. You know, some people have to be medicated just to go through it. You know, you come in there, a regular person, you get there and you now you're depressed. You can't deal with waking up there every day. Now you're on medication. So, well, yeah, I heard that you said when you came home that you was depressed. I was. I really was um, because I felt like, I, you know, when I went into the first time, you know, I owned a home, um, you know, so I wasn't so much uh, worried about the, the kids because they were home with their dad. My sister was there, my parents. And, you know, he had the support for, to have help with, with the kids and stuff. Um, and I didn't tell them where I was, but I didn't worry about anyone having a roof over their head and everything because it was all situated. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came home, again, I'd, I'd never been to jail before. I didn't have a, you know, I had a clean record. Now I'll have a record. So it was kind of like, what am I, what am I going to do? Like, what kind of, what kind of income can I make? What kind of career can I now have? You know, what things could I do? I'm used to, you know, always working, having like a little salary job and stuff like that, being able mm-hmm. to use my skills. And it was like, uh. It wasn't really, it wasn't happening at, when I first came home. You right. know? So, so I was pretty depressed about it because I hadn't made a plan um, for how I would come, how, how I would be able to support myself and my family at that time. And it just seemed like I, I could get the job. I always go to an interview and I'll have the job. They'll make me the offer. But then a couple of days later, record check comes back. They have to withdraw the request, you know, so you go through that a couple of times and it's like, oh man, that just gives you a loss of hope, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult when you don't have the resources to be able to um, continue to, to create um, sustainable income for yourself in a career based off of a mistake that you made. So I know in 2006, you found a job Mm -hmm. and you was hired as a financial aid advisor. Right. So actually, um, it was it was it was later than that. So in 2006, I actually let's see, um, I went to I went to prison in 2006. So mm. my, so my case back then, it was 2005. I was actually sentenced, but I started my time 2006. Um, so in January 2006, and then I came home about, I say, early April of 2006. So um, I ended up working at a, a data entry company. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't go to the, the, the job where I was a financial aid advisor um, after my stint in, in, um, the, from the first case was 2010. I went to oh, that okay. job then. Yeah, so in between time, I worked off the grid. I was just going to work, data, doing a data entry job and ma- maintaining and, and not trying to do anything else. I was like scared straight, you know. <laughs> so I you were clean even... for like almost 10 years. Yeah, exactly. It was 10 years yeah. between. It was 10. One time I went to jail, I was 30. The next time I went, I was 40. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they didn't happen back to back to each other. It was about a 10 years difference in time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I went so and they, No, go right ahead. No, so how did you get that job? Because they didn't do it. I know they didn't do a check, right? No, not on that job. But it would have been past the time anyway. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, true. Yeah, it would have been past the time. So it wouldn't have come up anyways. But this particular place did not do a quarry. So I didn't, it's mm. not like, so I didn't complete any documentation that I, I didn't lie on any paperwork or anything like that. But I didn't disclose my, my previous history. So I know when I was in college, 
Like mm-hmm. refund checks was a big thing. Right. So when, it, mm-hmm. so when I heard the story, I was like, nah. But see, it's different. And, and this is what, and it's different. It's not that. You know? So this is what I want everyone to understand. This is not a case where you requested a refund check and you're waiting for it. And I took it. Right. That's not what happened. That's not how it right. went. It was that. Do you was. think that's how people think and that's how it went? I think so because I'm asked that question a little bit a couple of times and I'm yeah. sometimes, sometimes I look at the comments and I'm like oh my goodness I don't even know why I look at these comments but <laughs> I think but, the documentary was a little choppy yeah it may it may have it may have um it may have been but that's not that's not how it went it was not that you know all of these students requested this and then right it was missing like that would that wouldn't have really made any sense right if you're expecting something and I you know that would have been a lot of cases that would have been right. brought to the school's attention. What what happened is, as I said, there was a demographic of students who you don't know that you have this additional funds that you can request. Mm-hmm. So these people had not requested, the, the checks that I had used were people not requesting the additional funds, right? right. There, was, there was one young lady who ended up after a few, it was like after six months of it happening, she requested it. And it was like, okay, so what I had to do, what, what my plan was, I have to take from someone else's to fix hers and, you know, scramble this up, you know, fix this situation. But I spoke to her on the phone and the next day I was going on vacation. So I had let her know that it would be processed and sent to her that week, the next week. Mm. But what she did was she called back while I was away on vacation. And that's the status. Right. And she talked to someone else and they had told her that it already had been cut and so forth, like all these months ago. And that prompted mm. investigation. So it wasn't that it was all these people requested refund checks and I would just keep them. It was this one particular person after it was like over $80,000 is what they stated, about $87,000 worth. And this happened over a year, a year and a half worth of time. Right. Mm. So on this time in 2012 is when this young lady had it. And I knew that it was this particular person um, that she requested it, but it was after it already had been done because she was a person who hadn't requested it for, you know, but like I said, about six months and she was requesting it. And at that time I had done it and I'm like, okay, I got to fix this, but I wasn't going to be able to fix it until I had returned because I was already scheduled to leave. And it, you know, it took me, it would have taken a couple of days to fix that, you know? So um, that's what happened to that. That's what prompted the case. And I know you pretty much didn't find out until you was on vacation because they freeze your account. Right, right. I was. Oh man, that was crazy. Oh my goodness, I was away out of the country, and I tried to use one of my cards, and it wasn't working. And I'm like, oh, this this, this machine's not working out here. it's not working right because I I know I got money on here you know and I was only getting like something to eat I'm like oh they must be crazy but (laughs) so then then I had uh, another card and and this one was working so I was like oh okay yeah something's wrong with that machine or something like this that that doesn't make sense but shortly after that I believe it was the next day my son called me and he's like hey mom listen um some agents have been by here they want to talk to you about something at the school I'm like oh man um, now I'm like, okay, this is what happened to that bank account yesterday. Um, mm. And, you know, I was frozen. I, I did call the bank and they weren't able to give me any information. So I'm like, yeah, something's, something's not right. Going on. Yeah, something's going on. So when, when my son told me that, then I was like, okay, all right, I get it. And I just let him know, you know, son, I'll um, just don't talk to anyone. Don't answer the door or anything. Um, I'll be, you know, I'll be home and um, I'll explain it to you then. And they, did they, so when you came back from your vacation, they arrested you at school? No, 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 no. Because I knew not to show back up there. I mean, <laughs> I, knew, I knew this was all over with. So I wasn't showing back up there. <laughs> Yo, I know that's real. You have to catch me. I'm like, no, I'm not showing up there. But I did want, you know, I wanted to go and face, you know, I'm not, I'm not running from this. There's no way I could run from or else I wouldn't have came back. You know, right? You know, but you know, I'm totally about you know being responsible for what I did, and I was ready to deal with it and get it over with as soon as possible. That's how I was thinking about it, you know. But when I returned, this was also a time where my son was going to be going to live on campus at his first year of college. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so I kind of I went away before he came, before he had to go, and um, uh, 
it, it was it was not good. It, it wasn't a good feeling. It wasn't a good yeah. feeling at all. It was the worst feeling in the world to know that not only is something happening to me, but it's about to affect my children in a major way. You know, um, and now they kind of like they grown. Yeah. yeah, they're grown. You know, I had one. My oldest son was a year out of school already, um, out of high school already, and then I had my youngest son was just graduating. You know, he had just graduated from high school, and we were on our way to getting him into dorm. You know, he was going to be going mm-hmm. in that very next week. So, um, again, bank accounts are frozen. Um, I can't get the things that he needs for school and all this stuff. It, the, that's all the things that were weighing on my head when I was on my way back on that flight. Um, and I got back. Um, I knew that, you know, I wasn't to go back to my job. Um, I went home and um, I contacted the, the, um, the agents that had left their cards with my son. I contacted them. I asked them, was I to turn myself in or, you know, what did they need me to do? Um, and he told me at that time, the detective at the time told me that they were still investigating, that they're not looking to arrest me at this time, but they did need to talk to me. Mm. You know, and I'm like, okay. Um, you know, I just continued to remain in contact with them, trying to figure out, like, how long does this take? Because we're talking about, these are federal agents now. So I'm talking about regular city police, and I'm also talking about federal agents. And I don't know yeah, how so this, you just wanted to get this over. I with. just wanted it over with so bad. Oh my goodness. This, the the fastest I got in it, the fastest I wanted out. Just wanted it to be over. So between both schools, how much did they say you sold? Between both schools, so it would have been a quarter of a million dollars the first one, and then this one eighty seven thousand. So what over wow. three hundred thousand, yeah. So that that's what they what they state. But that's what know, they say, yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. And you know what I, I I also say to you is that what what I, th- I feel like the first time, like, what they were also counting was, like, my salary, my 401k, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, everything that goes was going in and out of the account all the time wasn't always, you know, not to make it any less than, but I, I just never right. really believed the calculations of it. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, like, I, I, I see what you're saying, because if you already have money in there for your right. job, net, don't add that. Yeah, like, we're, we're not going <laughs> to add everything that I had in there. Right. <laughs> you know, and then they were trying to um, investigate, you know, like, the home that I bought is where these funds came from. But those things really came out of my, you know, my income, my real yeah. income, you know? But you were and still working. I was still working, you know? It was still coming out of my income. So, you know, there was just a lot of things that happened. Uh, when I my first case, I had a $12,000 bond. Um, and, and everything was frozen up, so I didn't have the funds to bail myself out. My cousin's wife ended up bailing me out. Um, I wasn't allowed to use the house to put up for bail because um, they were investigating to see if the house, you know, if any of the funds were appropriated to that. So it was just a lot of things. It became a very financial stress is a big stress. Yeah, <laughs> it is a big stress. It can break you down, and you could, I mean, you could be gone for good if you have um, some heavy financial stress. But how did you remain so calm? Because I feel like you just a calm person. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine you. Of course, I know you're freaking out, but I don't know. I just feel like you just remain like it is what it is. Like, let's just get this over with. I And, and I'm telling you, Ebene, that is true. With with me, I'll tell you what, what my personality is. I don't know where I developed that mechanism from. But when something is chaotic, I work best in chaos, right? Mm. So when people are screaming, jumping up and down and going off, I, I get very calm. I get very calm and I listen and I just talk calmly because I don't want to add to the craziness of the chaos, you know? And I feel like this chaos going around, we need to sit and figure this out and piece it out. And we can't do that if I'm all over the place. Now, right. if, I, if I have a deadline to do something and it's like next month, I'm just, it's not going to get done until the day before. That's how, you know, that's how I work because I work <laughs> under the pressure. <laughs> you know, it's not good to do. But that's just, I don't know how I developed that, but it just seems like it always works better when, when it's like that for me. I don't know. I really don't know where that comes from. I really don't. But I'm glad to say that I'm able to do that because there are some times where I feel like I don't want to do that. Right. You know, I feel like, like, yo, I want to go off, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to, I want to, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be this calm person because a lot of times people take your calmness for a weakness. Yeah. That's you a know? fact. They take your calmness for a weakness, and it's like you know, my my calmness is is for your safety. Sometimes I feel like listen, you know? <laughs> that's a fact too. 
Because you, know, you don't want to see me blacking out. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't want to meet that person. <laughs> like, you know, in order in order for us to get through things that we all have the things that we you know our coping our coping skills. You know, and in order um, for me, that's what I've always um, I've always been able to have that like my coping skills. So when we go back to talking about you know my kid's father when you know him going through the disease of addiction, there's a lot of times where I was just always like the Tasmanian devil. You know, like, mm. all, I feel like there was not a time I wasn't screaming. And I even tell you, our, our neighbors, everyone knew every time, oh, my God, I you could hear me down the street the way that I would scream all the time. <laughs> you could. And I was just, right. I, I think what happened is going through that for years and years and, and going through these situations, I just developed, a, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm tired of doing that. Like, I can't, nothing gets resolved when I'm in that, in that way. Yo, I'm the same way. Like, I was in, um, so I'm in therapy now. Uh-huh. And, yo, therapy has calmed me down. Oh, like, yeah. I don't like to curse at people. Mm-hmm. I don't like to argue with people. Like, I don't, I want, I just want to be a happy person. Right, right, right. Therapy like, helps. I don't want no, yeah, therapy really helps. It like, helps. It does. my friends had gotten into a situation and I was like, nope, I gotta remove myself. Right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, um, actually went, um, um, I was actually, oh, what was I gonna say? So a part of my conditions upon release of federal prison was that I had to go through therapy. Mm -hmm. So I had to see one of their therapists and I was totally against them forcing me to do that as part of my conditions, not because I didn't want therapy um, because I had, you know, gone through it at different periods in my life before, but it's that Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to go to the people they sent me to go to. Cause I felt like, well, they're going to be telling you things that I'm saying. I don't feel that it's really confidential and, you know, so I was fighting against that, but really she ended up being, um, you know, a really good therapist for me. And I continued to see her after my probation was over, you know? Oh, nice. Yeah, I did. Wait, so how much, how much sense, how much time did you get this, the second go around? So the second go around, I was sentenced to a year and a day in federal prison. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had, um, two years probation, two years probation. And, um, you know, that was tough. Um, this time I didn't own a home anymore. I had lost my home prior to, um, going through this case, the last case. Um, so, you know, I was in the process of losing. So I didn't have the house anymore as of 2011, I believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2011, you know, I lost the house. Um, and, um, it was tough because again, there was no roof over that. There was no secured living, there was no secure of anything, you know, I lost, mm-hmm. I lost every, everything's gone. So it's, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, the case took, um, so think I, the incident occurred in 2012, but I wasn't arrested until, um, I wasn't arrested until 2013. Wow. So we were going through this this case this whole time so that would drove me crazy right because you that's why this is why people ask well did you just turn yourself in no I had to continue to keep in touch with them so that I could know like okay well what day is it going to be I got to go find work I got to you know I got to yeah, take like, care of myself so what am I supposed to do sit and wait or what am I supposed to do so that's stressed why, out yes it stresses you out and I'm like I think that that's one of the um the reasons why they do things that way because you're taking all this time I don't know when you're coming I don't know when, when, what's going to happen. When, when is it going to happen? Now you got to go through the craziness of that. That's the stressful mm-hmm. right there. Then once you start, you know, once you do talk to them and stuff, and once you do get arrested, then you got another waiting period. Mm-hmm. So as you'll see, I didn't go to prison until January of 2014. So that's all that time from two, that August of 2012 yeah that, that would have drove me crazy right like just come arrest me let's get this over with that's what i'm telling you when i came off that plane i was ready to go but this is not how the federal government works <laughs> they do not work fast they don't nah. yeah so it was a it was a lot of it was a lot of stress for the waiting period and what's going to happen it's just all of that and when i was in federal prison i learned from some other women that they had done their crime five years ago and they had been waiting all this time and thinking Five years, just think. nah. And yes, in five years you have <laughs> forgotten. I'm about free after five years. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like you've moved on with your life. You barely remember what that was about. Now five years later, you've changed your life. You're a whole different person, and now you're gonna go to jail. Now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's it, not like slavery. It it does because the whole time, yeah, you 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 can't really make any any moves. You know. 
Right. You know, so it's tough. It was tough. And did, did you have to pay back or are you paying back restitution? Yes, yeah, so I'm paying restitution. On top of that, again, here's another way that, you know, um, you could be financially burdened and, you know, forced to probably try to make another move is because I came home to, uh, I had to pay $87,000 of restitution. So I have to make monthly payments on that. And that restitution payment began while I was in prison. So I worked. What? Yeah. So I worked while I was in prison and they would take, um, like say I made $18 a month and they would take like $6 a month. Wow. They're really nasty with it. Right. So they take $6 of my restitution payment towards it. Not that that's a lot, but it is if you make $18 a month. It is if it's $18 a month. Yeah. (laughs) So they take that, they take that $6 and then I come home and I have these documents from the state of Massachusetts telling me that I did not claim the stolen money that I, um, um, that I pled guilty to in federal court. And now I owe a $10,000 tax lien for the state of Massachusetts. Mm. so you know it's like that could have killed me upon, <laughs> upon coming home yeah. like, all of this stress I can't I don't know what to do you know I want to give up but you know what giving up is just never the option you know you might have but to no, we ain't gonna give up yeah we're not gonna give up it's never an option but you know because I'm gonna help you with some things yeah figuring it so out we ain't gonna give up yeah <laughs> yeah so you have to how has this strong how has this situation humble you um I'm totally humbled by it it humbled me for the fact of again um, you know, troubles are not bigger than you are, you know, the troubles are not mm. bigger than you, you, you know, and nothing is bigger than God, nothing at all. So, um, you know, it's not to say that you're not going to go through anything or that, you know, times won't get tough, but it is to say that you believe in yourself, believe that, that you will come out of these situations. Don't try to, um, think that, you, you know, I felt I was in control of everything. So I'm sitting up here trying to hurry up and make this here and this work here and move these pieces around. Um, but really, I, I shouldn't have, if I would have stopped and understood that I'm not in control of these things, have some patience, sit and wait, figure it out in the right way and let God mm-hmm. do his job, then, you know, I wouldn't have been in that situation. You know, so you have to start having an understanding of, of your place, you know, of your place and your position. And when I went to federal prison, I felt like it was that, um, you know, not to not to um harp on religion but i you know i believe in god truly and i feel like mm-hmm. he yoked me up by the back of my shirt and sat me down in kentucky you know he said yeah, he'll do it he did it and i and while i was there the whole time i just you know i just prayed and prayed and prayed and asked for peace i didn't ask for anything else i just want to be in this place and have peace with myself be able to deal with the fact like i'm not dealing with my little boys anymore now i'm dealing with some my adult, my sons are adult males. They don't have a support system there. And, you know, that's just a, a recipe for a disaster for them, for their lives. They're young black males out here on the street, you know. Mm-hmm. So I worried, I worried every day if I was going to come home, if my sons were going to be in prison also, if they were going to be killed on the street. They, you know, I that messed with me every day. Every day that was all yeah. I thought about, all I thought about. And I just prayed to God for peace and to cover them and to make yeah. it out of there. That works. Well, I I really want to support you. Um, so when is this book coming out so we can get these girls to, to support you and purchase this book so we can get this restitution paid off? Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> so we gotta get this book coming out. Like, what are you working on now? So I'm working on the book right now. You know, I have a lot of different speaking engagements that I'm gonna be doing. Um, I have like a program that I'm trying to create for incarcerated, um, for families of incarcerated, formerly incarcerated women. I want to work on a reentry mm-hmm. program as well. I started a nonprofit organization called Sisters United for Change. And through that nonprofit mm-hmm. organization is how I plan to do that work, giving back to the, the community um, and helping those, um, those are making reentry back into the world. Um, as I totally understand how difficult it is, um, the limited resources that we have. Um, my book, yeah, my book. I'm excited about this book. I've been wanting to do a book for years, but now um, is the perfect time to do it. And it will go into more detail about my life um, growing up as a child and what I've gone through. Some of that you've seen in the documentary, but again, in more detail, mm-hmm. in more detail, and in in better timeline. Um, and you'll get to know yeah. more of who I am and and about my story. 
Um, and I plan to have that book, start marketing that book in May. I'll also be going on. Yeah. I'll be going on radio tour starting May 15th for the book. And um, you'll start before that happens, you'll start to see like the cover, different excerpts from the book. I'll start posting those as time goes along. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it together and get it out there. All right. So I need to, I need a copy. Yes, absolutely. And we, and we can do a giveaway. Absolutely. I can purchase two copies for sure. I want to support you, but I'm excited. I'm so happy for you. I think that I'm really excited to hear your story from yeah. you. Like I, me and you have a conversation, but I just feel like with the documentary, like it was a good introduction, but I can tell that it was some pieces that was missing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces missing. And you know, one, one thing is um, what people always say to me, when you're doing interviews, you look like you're still holding back and not giving us some information. And it's like, you know, it's not that I'm trying to hold back information, but one thing is that I want to make sure that I give detailed, perfect information in the book as well, you know, plug in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so some things I'm not too, um, don't give too much of because, you know, I'm going to put it in the book. The other is that it's still, still uncomfortable to talk about hurtful and painful things, you know? Um, yeah. These things are, you know, this is real life. It's not a, a reality show, a scripted show or anything like that. This is this is real life. This is really what happened to me. And this is really what I'm going through. And this is what really a, a lot of people are going through. Um, and I'm just your regular, typical young lady come from the hood, trying to work her way up the ladder to do better and to provide for herself and her family. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about you know do you get tired of telling your story no I don't I don't get tired of telling it I think that I'm getting better at it <laughs> you know it's all of it mm, it's been all a, that was a good yeah, one <laughs> it's been it's been a it, it's not been very easy like just think when I did the show I didn't know those people more than 10 minutes before I started telling them everything <laughs> yeah. you know it was just on film so there was no direction or I didn't get to practice or anything like that before they came and filmed it was I just met you five minutes ago this is what happened to me that was tough you know, it's pretty tough to do. Yeah. Um, going to the radio stations and being asked, you know, people have different questions. That's pretty tough because there's, there's still painful things. I still carry the pain of these things. Um, and so talking about them hasn't been so easy, but I'm, I'm starting to get used to the whole, you know, understanding of I'm not telling this story because of me. I'm telling this story because there's another young lady out there and she's in a dark, yeah. she's in a dark place. And she doesn't know that she's going to come out of this. Because when you're in a dark place, you don't think that it's you're ever going to come out. And that's why I really wanted to have you on the show. Because I feel like so many women can relate to you. Because, like, I understand. Mm-hmm. That's why I was like, damn, I understood why she did it. Like, her back was against the right. wall. It ain't right. right. But mm-hmm. <laughs> what's more important? You and these kids out in the streets or... It is what it is, and you gotta do what you gotta absolutely, do. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that and that's what that's what survival is. You know what some people survival yeah, for what sure. Some people call you know a crime in our communities. It's called survival. Survival, you know? yeah, you know? that's a yeah. fact. And, that, and that's um and that's how I take it. Well, last but not okay. least, everybody wants to know okay. this. Do you have any regrets? I do. I do. I have regrets. Um, I have regrets that I that I didn't um I didn't believe in myself enough that I would be able to make another decision that would have brought me out of that situation I I Mm. didn't I didn't um I didn't give myself enough belief and I didn't give myself enough uh, credit that I was smart enough to do something better than that um I regret that I took one minute out of my children's lives um, for any dollar. No dollar amount can equal to the time that I miss with my kids. And you think three months isn't a long time. It seemed to me like it was 100 years. You think a year and a day, which it was actually 10 months that I did in, in Kentucky, um, not even in the same state as my family, that seemed like a million years to me. And um, no dollar could ever be worth that. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. Wait, one more question and I'm going I'm to let, let okay. you go. Did you have a conversation with the girl that was on the documentary? The one, Which one? girl that got you caught the first time? No, the so second there was, time. So the second time, the, the young lady that you see on the documentary, her name is Astrid. And she's actually, she's actually a friend of, of ours. You know, she's a friend of ours. So okay. um, the day that she went, you know, she, she, was, she had asked, like, the people want to interview. I gave them her name to contact her to interview because, hey, it can't be, just be a one-sided story. You know, it can't be one-sided. Right. Now, that was dope. It's not one-sided, and I don't feel no kind of way about how she right. feels. I don't, I, I know Asha, I love her. And again, this was something that I did. I actually used hers, like I was explaining to you the, before, the one lady that called um, 
and I knew I needed to fix it. How I would fix it is by mm-hmm. taking from someone else to fix someone else's. So I was creating a mess, you know, and, and she mm-hmm. was one of the ones that I had used to fix someone else's, um, like the year before or something like that. And, um, I, I had a conversation with her about it. I have given my apologies to her and I, I don't feel any kind of way about how she, how she felt about it. And we have no, we have mm-hmm. no problem with each other. You know, she's, she's, you know, she's one of my friends that are part of our family, I could say. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'm so excited for everything that's going to happen with you. Once that book come out, I'm definitely going to promote it for you because I cannot wait to hear your story from your mouth, your words. So Absolutely. Um, if y'all have any questions, comments, or concerns for my guests, please email me at hello at the PhD podcast. And to my guests, thank you so much. Like, this has been, like, one of my favorite Aww. episodes. and until next time everyone later later hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher back with another season of the global number one podcast the girlfriends last time we investigated the murder of gail katz this time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.